to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston. I'm the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit website. You can find us at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined today by two of my reporters, Jackie Valley and Riley Snyder. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming. Uh, we had a busy news week, as always. I think they're all busy now, but we did something uh, this week that we don't usually do. Jackie Valley, we sent you out <laughs> of the friendly 702 confines uh, up to Reno, and tell us what story you covered up there. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, so I went to uh, Reno earlier this week because Congressman Shimkus, John Shimkus from Illinois, was speaking to the Reno Sparks Chamber of Commerce about Yucca Mountain. Uh, so he um, you know, it was a vis- visit coordinated because the chamber is trying to bring more speakers to Hot Topic to, to their events um, to really just create more dialogue. And so it was designed as an event where uh, the congressman who's been pushing Yucca Mountain, trying to revive it, could you know, give his take on the situation, the timeline, his explanation, but then also hear from chamber members about their concerns um, as it heads to a floor vote probably in the next week or so. It's, it's interesting in, in, in a couple of ways. First of all, that Shimkiss, who is from a state with a lot of nuclear waste, uh, Illinois, one of the big proponents of Yucca Mountain, essentially was pretty frank, I thought, from your story up there, essentially saying, well, we always knew after Harry Reid was gone we were going to move forward mm-hmm. with this, right? He said something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, his uh, wording was it was never dead. It was maybe just on life support, so it was more a matter of when rather than if. Um, and he you know, made that clear. Um, in his tone. I mean, obviously it has to pass some hurdles with the votes. It it sounds like he's confident enough votes are there in the House to get it through. Um, Then it has the Senate. He was, of course, asked, what are the chances there? Uh, Senator Heller and others have been very against it and outspoken. And he said, well, I would say never say never. So they're working hard behind the scenes to make sure that it has a chance there as well. Much easier to get something out of the House than the Senate where one senator can gum up the works and they can do uh, all kinds of things. Although uh, uh, there's such a not-in-my-backyard mentality on uh, Yucca Mountain. Uh, how, how was the crowd, Jackie? I mean, how was he received? Well, I thought that was one of the most interesting parts because I expected it to be uh, better attended. I mean, I think I counted maybe like two dozen people there. And so and some of those people were representatives for... Senator Heller and uh, our Congressman Amode. Amade was his folks were there too. Um, there was someone from a utility company, but you know people asked questions. It wasn't a uh, a fiery debate by any means. It was actually polite, and you know at a certain point there just weren't any more questions. <laughs> So it ended within its hour time frame. I know that one progressive uh, group, I think Bob Fulkerson of Plan, wrote a letter protesting about it. But there were no protesters out there or anything like that, right? No, no protesters. I mean, honestly, if you were outside that building or even inside it and just not in that room, you'd have no idea what was going on, that it was just such a conversation of that importance happening downstairs. Yeah, with only, as you say, just a, a couple dozen uh-huh. people coming and you have this powerful congressman who's essentially pushing through this project that has been a story in Nevada for 30 mm-hmm. plus years and it's essentially a non-event. So why do we send you again, Jackie? 
Well, you know, the congressman did have interesting things to say. And I I would (laughs) assume it would be much better attended in southern Nevada. And the congressman did say that, no, he hasn't spoken specifically in Las Vegas, but, you know, he'd be open to invites if that were to Yeah, that would be really interesting, right? Because (laughs) Reno is so far away from Mm -hmm. the actual site. It would be interesting to see if he came to southern Nevada. All right, Riley, you covered a story uh, uh, this week uh, on on the uh, ongoing saga of the recalls uh, being proposed against uh, three state senators. Uh, what happened this week? Yeah, so, you know, the news gods were very friendly this week to the <laughs> Nevada Independent. Um, on Monday, we, we reported that Mark Elias, this Democratic super lawyer, he was Hillary Clinton's general counsel. He's been general counsel for other Democratic presidents. He's basically who Democrats call when they have a major legal issue, filed a suit in conjunction with Bradley Schrager, um, the former general counsel for the Nevada State Democratic Party, still involved with the party, challenging these recall efforts against two Democratic state senators and one independent state senator, formerly a Republican, now independent, Patricia Farley. The suits had kind of been in the works for some time. They said they wanted to file it now because the deadlines to file these recall petitions is the end of October, beginning of November, they have to get a certain number of, uh, it's 25% of the people who voted in the last election to qualify them. The, the recall backers have been kind of silent. They haven't really ever given a, a public reason why they're doing it. You, of course, John, reported on um, the reasons for recall. But they, Mark Elias and, and this lawsuit is asking for a judge to put a stop to the recalls because essentially they're saying that special elections, having a special election now will uh, decrease, obviously all recall elections will get lower turnout. That's what, what they're saying is that that would violate the Voting Rights Act because people of color, people of low income, minorities uh, have a harder time voting in these. They have to take time off work. They have to do, you know, they, they have to take like a lot more, it takes a lot more effort to vote in a special election. Like employee, employers don't give that day off. It's harder to, to go and vote, especially for a down ballot race for state senate. I don't think like 95% of the state who's no, knows who their state senator is. So right. It's an interesting legal strategy. They're obviously trying to get it stopped in the you know the two weeks before these signatures are due for the recall elections. Um, but yeah, it shows I think Democrats are taking this seriously both locally and nationally. So this is a federal lawsuit. Uh, they're going to federal court because they want to make and Mark Elias, who who is the Democratic super lawyer you mentioned, is an expert in filing suits in federal court on voting rights kinds of things. I think some people, uh, and I have to tell you, and, and we'll pull back the curtain a little bit on, on, on the Indies news gathering, uh, Riley, you and I and, and, and Michelle Rendell sat down with Mark Elias, and, and I think you'll remember, I, I kind of asked him, like, you know, come on. I mean, this looks like a kitchen sink kind of Hail Mary, like, uh, this isn't going to work. Uh, you, you're, you're just, you know, hoping to gum up the works a little bit. But He seemed, and he made some arguments, they think that this has a real chance because of the federal issues as opposed to the state issues. In other words, that federal courts don't really care about state constitutions that allow this recall. They care about access to the ballot and those kinds of things, right? Yeah, well, Mark Elias would be a pretty horrible lawyer if he agreed with you that he's just throwing (laughs) the kitchen sink at... Everyone should agree with me, Ryan. Yeah. Don't you think? (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's three sort of claims they're making in this suit. They admitted that one is sort of novel, this whole voting rights question. And yeah, Mark Elias did say that federal courts tend to not take uh, state-based arguments, state-based constitutions as seriously as federal law. It's the the Ninth Circuit, which has been favorable to uh, voter suppression lawsuits and trying to get that, you know, stopped. So it it definitely has a chance. Uh, There's a lot of 
time between in, in the next two weeks from they'll, they'll figure this out and get a court date and figure out whether or not a judge will do it. Um, and I'm sure that if and when these uh, signatures are submitted and they start verifying the signatures, there will be more and more legal challenges just to try to prevent this from ever even getting on the ballot. Uh, there's a huge campaigns going on inside each of these districts, so I'm sure is surprising and probably annoying some voters. There's mail pieces going on on both sides. The Democrats are running a so-called decline to sign, telling people not to sign or to have their signatures removed from the petitions. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you need about 14,000 signatures for a couple of these and 7,000 for, for, for the one against Patricia Farley, uh, which is the one that people think is most likely uh, to qualify, uh, but they, uh, they they are making these arguments not just about uh, um, that you essentially shouldn't undo elections that just took place, but they're talking about access for for minority voters that they would be disproportionately uh, uh, affected uh, by this, right? Yeah, and in the the suit is filed on behalf of a bunch of uh, Nevada voters who live in these districts, and it has all of their stories about how they would have to take time off work, they work across town, they have to um, you know either request a day off, get childcare, um, take a bus to the polling station. So they're saying there's enough of a uh, burden to these voters that it, it should come up and there should be a, a voting rights amendment argument. They're also saying that the state really doesn't have an interest in, in holding these elections. We just had an election for two of these state senators in 2016, Patricia Farley, um, who has said she's not running for re-election. That seal will be up again in 2018. So they're saying that there, there really isn't evidence of, you know, generally accepted malfeasance. None of these three state senators did anything other than, you know, vote on certain bills. None of them were caught, you know, with underage hookers or anything in a car. Um, and, you know, that that's a, one of the three arguments that they're making. And, and we should point out that uh, 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 we should mention this at the beginning. This lawsuit is not filed against the Republicans who are doing these recalls. The lawsuit is filed against the two election officials who essentially would oversee the recall elections, the Clark County Registrar of Voters, Joe Gloria and Barbara Sagaski, uh, the Secretary of State, because of what you mentioned. The argument is there's no state interest in this. No malfeasance has been shown. But we should repeat to, to, to our listeners, there is nothing in the state law, at least, that says there has to be malfeasance. It's essentially a no-fault recall state. Yeah, and that, that whole argument about malfeasance is sort of based on federal law. It's not in the state. I always, I, I didn't mention this to Mark Elias, but I appreciate the irony of them complaining about wasting taxpayer dollars on a recall election when they're forcing the state to spend taxpayer dollars to defend themselves in this lawsuit <laughs> filed against the state. But yeah, it, that's definitely not a, a, there's nothing in state recall law that, that needs a reason. So let's let's uh, just conclude this by telling people the time frame here. Uh in about two weeks, they have to turn in the first batch of signatures and then the other ones. It's a 90-day period they had to for, for, for these recalls. And two weeks, uh, in two weeks, is, is Farley's uh, has to be turned in in two weeks? Yes. Or Woodhouse is first? Uh, Woodhouse is first, then yeah. Farley, then Nicole Canizaro. Woodhouse and Canizaro were both Democratic state senators who just got elected in 2016. And so that doesn't give them much time to get to get a court date, to, to, to try to stop the whole process, right? But that's clearly what they want to do. They want to they, they stop this process in its tracks, right? Yeah. Again, like we we asked and he said on the record that they sort of tried to plan this not too early where, you know, the court could say, well, there's no evidence that they're they're close to doing it or not too late where it would already get on the ballot. So this was sort of their ideal sweet spot of when to try and, I guess, gum up the, the recall works. All right. Well, we're, we're going to keep following the story. Go on the NevadaIndependent.com and we'll give you all the updates. Uh, uh, that, that you could possibly want on this story. Speaking of elections that are actually going to take place, Jackie, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a candidate for a major office 
uh, announced uh, this week. I think some people were wondering if she was actually really going to get into the race, but Clark County Commissioner Christian Kiliani is getting into the governor's race. She is. She uh, formally announced yesterday on the steps of Las Vegas Academy of the Arts downtown. Uh, she had, you know, as far back as August, said she was 99.9% sure she would jump in. Then, of course, earlier this month when the shooting happened on the Strip, um, it postponed her planned announcement event the, the following day. Um, but several days later, she was at a Hispanics and Politics breakfast, and she basically declared there and said, you know, I don't want to you know, keep being cagey on this. I am going to be running for governor. But she, you know, kept the details a little bit more under wraps until last night on the steps of the high school. Um, she spoke for, I think, just under 12 minutes. It was a pretty concise speech by her terms because she's usually more of a talker. <laughs> um, but she spoke a little bit about how, you know, she wanted to bring Nevada together. She still thought she had something to offer. You know, she's in her third term on the county commission, so she's termed out after this one. Um, and her husband passed away two, about two and a half years ago. And, and she's been very honest about that, how it did rattle her and, you know, took her a good year to go through the grieving journey and realize that she did still want to stay in politics and was going to do something, whether it was governor or, or another position. We should we should tell people, because a lot of people forget, and I think too many people actually in our business forget, these people actually are human beings mm -hmm. too, right? And her husband died. It was a very tragic thing. He was mm -hmm. driving down from Mount Charleston and had some kind of medical episode and, and died. But people should know a little bit of their background too, Jackie. Gary Gray was a very successful Democratic political consultant. They were a team. He was, he was the head of what was known as the Assembly Democratic Caucus. He ran governor's races uh, for Bob Miller. Uh, he, he has been essentially her closest friend and political confidant. And so I think a lot of people thought that at the end of this term, he's gone. Uh, she had run for mayor before in a disastrous run uh, uh, the last time Carolyn Goodman ran. Uh, that maybe this would be the end for her. But her speech was really Chris June Kiliani being Chris June Kiliani, right? Talking about yeah. progressive values, being there for the people. I mm -hmm. think she said, I actually like people. I don't know if that was an yeah. implication that maybe Steve <laughs> Sisolak doesn't like people or, or, or what. She said, you have to have a heart to run for political office. And she feels like she has one big enough to step into that role. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was uh, she was very honest about everything. And, you know, it was... Uh, our photographer, Jeff Scheid, got this great photo of her just after she announced, kind of like holding her hands and looking up. And it was, you know, kind of a touching moment that, you know, this meant a lot to her. And it wasn't just this preconceived thing. She really thought thought a lot through it. We should tell people that, uh, first of all, filing, I always have to say this, filing doesn't actually uh, start for these races until March. Mm -hmm. So all of these announcements really don't mean all that much until they actually sign the papers uh, to file for the race. But she clearly uh, was indicating, uh, uh, Jackie, that this is a grassroots mm -hmm. campaign, which is always code to me when someone announces that they know they're not going to have as much money as their opponent. Steve Sislak has like $4 million already, right? Yeah. And she wasn't shy about addressing that. Um, I thought it, it was pretty cute on the in front of her where she was giving her remarks, she had tables and donation jars sitting there. And, it, you know, there was a little sign that says, make checks payable to blah, blah, blah. We'll um, put coins in there. We'll take yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. People, yeah, she took whatever. <laughs> and then she, you know, at the very end of her remarks, um, addressed that and said, you know, look, this part is never easy. But, you know, as much as just showing your support and getting out there knocking on doors is great, we do need financial help because that will get our message out there. Um, so she called on her supporters to 
come through in that regard. Um, but, you know, offer you know, donate as as much as you can, every dollar counts type of thing. She talked about how she still remembers her very first campaign contribution. It was $20 from this woman who was living on a street where she was knocking on a door <laughs> in 1990. So, you know, I afterward I talked to um, former commissioner Tom Collins, who was there supporting her and says he's 100% behind her. You know, I asked him that financing question, whether how much of that will affect her campaign down the line. He doesn't seem to think it will. He said she's one of the smartest campaigners. Um, she makes every dollar count, you know, doesn't use more than what she actually needs. So, And, of course, Tom Collins is a story <laughs> in and of itself. We don't have time to tell on this yeah. podcast. But he and Chris Junkiliani go back to they were they served in the legislature together in the assembly. He was on the Clark County Commission uh, for a while, and he and Steve Sisolak do not uh, like, like each other. Who else was at this announcement? What other kinds of people? Um, Dr. Carrison from UMC, University Medical Center, was there. And interestingly, when um, Chris G. ran through her issues that she really wants to tackle in office, the very last one was fixing what she called a, the broken uh, mental health care and addiction system. And so she's already been in conversations with Dr. Carrison <laughs> about starting a committee to look into these issues so that she can hit the ground running that first day she's in office. So, um, you know, he acknowledged that committee is ready to go and it's it's starting. <laughs> Dale Carrison, he is he, he's the medical director at, at UMC, yes, correct? And, yes. And Pete, some people may remember his picture was there with the president uh, when, the, when the president came to visit uh, UMC uh, uh, af after uh, the Vegas uh, shooting. Uh, fi finally on this, uh, Jackie, did she, I mean, did she just essentially make any kind of references at all to running against Sisolak in the sense that she's obviously going to run as the person who was beloved by the base, the progressive versus the moderate, not, not, not as Democrat as, as, as mm -hmm. she is. Did that come up at all? She really didn't mention it. I mean, not. She mentioned um, Governor Sandoval and acknowledged that he had, you know, created a good foundation to build upon. Um, but you know, reading between the lines, I I really didn't get see any really reference to Steve Sisolak. Um, Plenty of time for that, I guess. Yeah. And that's what, when I saw her speak at Hispanics and Politics, she was very clear about that, that this was about her and she wanted to make herself known and her positions more than wading into that side of things right now. So her announcement, Riley, was supposed to be on uh, uh, the, the day after October 2nd, the day after the shooting and postponed. Adam Laxalt, who also is going to get into the race, Dan Schwartz, the treasurer, has already announced he's rescheduled his announcement and a big tour uh, for, for, for early November. And, and, and uh, you, you and I both got an invitation or saw an invitation uh, this week. Uh, th this is happening. I mean, he's actually going to start ra raising money, right, the first day that he announces. Yeah, I, I, we should probably clarify that Adam Laxall didn't invite us to this no. fundraiser, but we... Well, you weren't invited? <laughs> no, somehow I missed the memo on that, John. Uh, Me neither. I don't yeah. know why. It's so strange. Um, but yeah, uh, he's fundraising in Reno. He is, as you said, was all set to announce on November 1st. I because this is how I live my life. I went on adamlaxall.com and, and found his campaign website where he had a video that I think is still up. He had all of his issues laid out. Of course, the horrible shooting happened and everything politically was delayed for two to three to four weeks. But yeah, he's set to announce on the first. He'll be doing a 19-stop, 17-county tour um, throughout the first week of November. And he's starting uh, in Vegas and Reno. 
in Vegas and Reno. Uh, we, we did cover this week uh, one of the more bizarre stories since I've actually, and this is one of the things I love about Nevada politics, you just still discover strange stuff. A story, uh, Riley, that you that, that uh, you and uh, uh, Megan Messerly wrote about, which is a, a local judge who was told at least two and probably more uh, uh, defendants that uh, they should behave and get their voting rights back so they can do what? They can vote for Donald Trump for re-election. <laughs> uh, judge Susan Johnson is a district court judge here in Clark County. She's been in office since uh, 2008, I believe. And we got tipped off that she has this somewhat unusual tendency um, during the sentencing for people convicted of felonies. Generally, these cases are plea deals and they'll agree to do probation in return for having their sentence commuted from a felony to a misdemeanor. Under Nevada law, if you're convicted of a violent felony or more than one felony, you lose the right to vote and you have to petition the court to get it back. So by doing this, you'll be allowed, if you complete your probation, to vote again. And she tells these people, you know, while they're there during the sentencing, you know, you have to do this because you need to be able to, you know, vote for President Donald Trump during the next presidential election campaign. This is kind of strange. Judges are not supposed to talk about politics like at all, especially not during sentencing periods. We found two cases of this. I reached out to one of the um, public defenders who was involved in the case. He said, "Yeah, this is strange. Our office is keeping track keeping track of it." There's another criminal defense attorney who said, "You know, this is sort of making its way around the legal rumor mill, and it's kind of throwing all of us off because." You know, generally you don't want a district court judge telling a person in like a burglarly case that they need to vote for <laughs> Trump because they get their probation completed. So we, we did the story. We posted the transcripts. Um, Megan Messerly, her colleague, actually talked to Judge Johnson. She said, as you can probably guess, that she was just making the comments to make everyone feel comfortable, sort of telling a joke to make people feel at ease. Um, kind just, of a weird joke, though. Not, you know, yeah. I wasn't there. Context <laughs> matters a lot in humor. Yeah. Um yeah. And yeah, she said, I, I, I apologize if anyone was offended. And everyone laughed at the jokes during the time. I've heard from other attorneys who said they were, they kind of laughed because they were sort of like, what, what's going on? Why did she just say that? So it, it's interesting. I'm sure there's, we will probably find more cases like this out here. Um, there is a state commission on judicial discipline, but they don't tell us whether or not a complaint has been filed until they start actually going through the actual um you know, public hearing complaint procedures. So it's unclear if that'll be a, a next step for, for Judge Johnson. Yeah, it's likely that someone has or will file a complaint with the Judicial Discipline Commission, which probably a lot of people listening don't know what that is. Uh, but they actually have this process, and you alluded to it. And I, I guess I, I, I'm torn on this. You know, as, as a journalist, I think we should know everything all the time, right? But on the other hand, they think it's fair to the person who the complaint has been filed against that they have to find essentially probable cause to proceed before it becomes public, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, it, I don't really know a lot about judicial rules in Nevada, um, but it it's definitely comes up in a lot of the judicial code of conduct stuff. There's nothing saying... You know, don't mention voting for the president when you're sentencing people to probation. But there is just general language about not talking about political offices or other candidates for political party. Judges aren't supposed to identify the the party they're they're they belong to unless they're asked. You know, we tried to find out her voter registration, and, and that information is confidential. So they're supposed to play it straight and narrow. Well, well th th this is a very interesting story. If, if we find more cases, we will obviously talk about them on the NevadaIndependent.com. Before we talk about what you guys are working on uh, uh, c coming up, uh, Riley, just uh, talk one, about one other story you had. We are actually recording this podcast on a Thursday this week, and this is in the Thursday edition of the Nevada Independent. This whole issue of energy that affects everybody in, in Nevada, 
uh, who are concerned about the issue of choice, and you're going to be able to choose someone besides NV Energy if a ballot question passes uh, next year. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions, including a new one uh, that you wrote about uh, 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 and the Indy. What was that? Yeah, so this is, the again, the part of the podcast that most people probably skip through, so skip ahead five minutes if you don't Do care about it. Do not say things <laughs> like that, Riley. Um, so... In 2016, question three passed about 75 to 25. Not a lot of people know what it is or what it did. It basically requires that NV Energy, which is a vertically integrated uh, utility, it means it makes the power, transmits the power, and sells you the power, will have to give up the making of the power and selling you of the power. When this passed in 2016, that wasn't really looked into. As we've sort of moved into it, as this campaign has sort of gained steam, it's again on the ballot in 2018. It has to pass again to take effect. It won't take effect until 2023 if it does pass. There's a big concern because this is like a very large regulatory undertaking. We're basically remaking our entire electric market. And I can tell you that electric markets are really, 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 really complicated. So the the governor put together this 25-member commission that studies energy choice. They're supposed to come up with like the best recommendations. It's probably like best described as a team of rivals. It's people from major casino companies. It's lawmakers. It's the AARP. It's the Bureau of Consumer Protection. It's all these people who have a stake in uh, the energy process. And they've been having subcommittees where they go through a lot of the issues. And one that they went through this week was this issue of stranded assets. Envy Energy has a lot of power plants, obviously. They also have a lot of um, things that are called power purchase agreements and other contractual obligations that go beyond 2023. They have these because it helps them keep the price of power stable. They can kind of guess how much electricity is going to cost. They have to comply with a renewable portfolio standard, so a certain percentage of the power has to come from renewable sources. And so they're in all these contracts, obviously not knowing that the energy choice might pass and they might have to stop and get out of them. The problem is there's no easy way to get out of them. There's 46 power purchase agreements. None of them have language. What's in the, the con- big number? Tell everybody the big number. So there's um, $7 billion worth of contracts. That's B- billion with a B, <laughs> not M. Um, so it, it's a huge amount. And... The utility, like, they don't really know how best to get out of it. It's a very, like, legalese process that they're not really sure of. Um, they sort of need permission from all of these uh, other parties in the contracts to be able to transfer them. They might end up being sued if they're not able to transfer them. Um, another concern is that when they are transferring these, these contracts, they obviously are going to sell them. It, it should be perfectly clear that the $7 billion figure isn't what the utility is going to have to pay to get out of this. They're going to sell these contracts, um, transfer them for a fee. One of the concerns that the utility has is like they're just creating a buyer's market for these contracts. It's not like Envy Energy can go home and walk away if they don't like the deal that or the market that they're being presented for these contracts. Um, so they're going to be at a disadvantage on that. And, you know, it's they're, they're kind of dependent on the, the state legislature, if this does pass, to create and sort of flesh out a retail energy market in the 120-day session that they get. These are Again, business folks, teachers, um, there's not a lot of energy experts in the legislature. So there's a lot of concern, I think, that's starting to trickle up. And this is just one of those of what they're going to do with all these contracts. Yeah, because choice sounds good. But, uh, you know, we just don't know what the law of unintended consequences might be. And I I know you did uh, for your story, you quoted John Wellinghoff, who is a former uh, federal official, used to work in Nevada and the consumer advocacy side. Now he's working for the choice uh, advocates. And he essentially said, don't worry, everything will be fine, right? Yeah. And John Wellinghoff told me that Nevada went through this in the late 1990s. Um, we're in a better place now because there's more regionalization. There's, oh, I'm going to get really in the weeds. And the California Independent <laughs> System Operator, there's a whole 
growing movement to get Nevada into a wholesale energy market, which will basically allow folks in California and other states to, to possibly purchase these contracts for energy being produced or, or that's coming to Nevada. And he said, you know, I'm not worried. There's a there's a demand for these. Energy prices have been stable for a long time. You know, let's, let's cross this bridge when we come to it. But, you know, the, the, the choice people point to a lot of other benefits, they say, that that makes it worth it. Uh, and, and Envy Energy has maintained throughout this entire process that it is neutral, although it's, it, it, it seems like they're not probably uh, that neutral. I'm, I'm wondering, Jackie, do you think we should worry that we're going to lose Riley uh, to one of these big utilities mm-hmm. as like an energy consultant at some point? He knows this stuff better I than would, that. would be very fearful. I, 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 I wake up fearing such things. All right, let's talk about the future. Uh, Jackie, uh, t- tell everybody what you're, uh, the, the lucky listeners of our podcast, what you're working on for the weekend. Sure. Um, Megan and I have been working on a big profile of Sheriff Joe Lombardo, who overnight unwittingly became a household name. Uh, so we interviewed him at length. We spent a good hour with him last week. He was really open and honest with us about his emotions throughout the ordeal, um, challenges, uh, you know, that <laughs> he's come under some criticism for the changing sh- timeline of the events um, leading up to the security guard um, encountering the the door up in Mandalay Bay and then the shooting. Um, but he spoke of how, you know, as sort of a balancing act for him, you know, he wanting to provide the, the public with information they were hungry for and to calm nerves while also making sure, you know, they had the most accurate information. And it was, it's obviously a very complex, complicated investigation. Um, so it was really enlightening to hear him talk about everything that happened in those minutes and days afterward. And then we're talking to a bunch of people who knew him. Um, I spoke to former sheriff Doug Gillespie, who talked a lot about his working relationship with Lombardo over the years and described how he's very meticulous and someone who picks up on things easily. Um, for instance, some of you may remember uh, Metro had this ordeal with their radios several years back and they had bought this new system and it wasn't working correctly and so they were having to figure out how to fix it and um, Gillespie put Lombardo in charge of that and he said it was the best decision he ever made because he grasped it more quickly than probably anyone else in that room and Consequently, they got it figured out in a timely manner. That's a great nugget, and uh, we can look forward to a lot more of those. Uh, you and Megan have done a really thorough job in the interviews uh, 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 on the story. And no one was more the face of Las Vegas during that whole week than Joe Lombardo, and you could see a lot of times the emotions that you're talking about would be really interesting because he's not a valuable guy nat- nat- naturally to hear mm-hmm. uh, his interview. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, uh, that will probably be in, on Sunday uh, we will have uh, that piece. Riley, what are you working on? Yeah, so uh, like Jackie, I'm also working with our colleague Megan Messerly, and we're back to our old tricks and doing another campaign finance story. Uh, we're not doing state or legislative candidates this time. We're doing two of Nevada's congressional districts, Congressional District 3, which is the southern part of Clark County, and Congressional District 4, which is basically the northern part of Clark County, and looking at a lot of the sort of strange overlap between donors to uh, these candidates. The Democrats are pretty straightforward. There's a lot of overlap between Susie Lee, who's sort of the front runner in Congressional District 3, and Reuben Keewen, the congressman and, and Democrat in Congressional District 4. Who ran uh, against each other last Who ran against each other in <laughs> Congressional District 4. Um, and, you know, the for the Republican front runner in Congressional District 4, Stravos Anthony, um, things are pretty much the same. But there's sort of this big scrum between uh, what was four and is now three sort of candidates jostling for a position in Congressional District 3, Dave McKeon, a former Clark County Republican chair, Victoria Seaman, and a former state assemblywoman, and Scott Hammond, a state senator. Um, and there's a lot of like weird overlap between some of these candidates. I found like a 
Ruben Kiwin and a uh, Stravos Anthony, like Max Donor. Um, there's just sort of like strange bedfellows and a lot of like prominent Vegas names giving to several of these candidates in ways you wouldn't expect. So you can look for that on Saturday. That sounds great. Uh, but, uh, Riley, will there be art? Will there be graphics with this? Of course. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Because uh, I know I know Megan likes uh, to do her strange webs on this. Are we getting one of those? More charts than uh, you know than you can count, John. I like that. All right, Riley and Jackie. Thanks for coming out for the podcast uh, this week. That is all the time that we have for for indie matters this week. We want to know what you think, though. If you have the, if you have ideas, criticism, or even those rare uh, pearls of praise, email us at ideas at the nvindy. Com. And check out our site. I'll mention it again, thenevadaindependent.com. You can also go on iTunes and subscribe and rate us. We're on Google Play and all kinds of other uh, platforms. Uh, I also, as always, want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to the man who puts this all together, Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound... Podcast Smooth. At least two of the three of us do. Uh, thanks, everybody. I'm John Ralston, the editor of uh, the Nevada Independent. We'll see you next week. Podcast smooth. Podcast smooth. Podcast smooth. Podcast smooth. Podcast smooth.